Uh, well, I'm so glad to see you all here. No one's more surprised that you all came back than I am. Um, Fran and I have been here for um, a week, and I, th I think we love it. Uh, it has been an amazing week for us and our family. I don't know what the impression that you have of your own state is, but you know when you get out further east, and especially you get to Texas, you have people who say of California, well, I'm not going to go there, but what, what, but, but there's this reputation, why, why would anybody live in a place as crowded as California? It's like a Yogi Bearism, right? It's so crowded, no one goes there anymore, right? But we have absolutely loved it, and we have been enjoying your coastline. We have the weather. I know you were complaining about it, but we're just <laughs> glorying in your weather. I could not believe it, but the day after 4th of July, 5th of July, we went to Disneyland. It was jammed. I mean, I've never seen so many people in one place. About, I mean, I looked at, later at the attendance records, about 65,000 people. And we had a blast. Uh, waiting in line. <laughs> no, we did that fast pass system. They worked it out. We had a fabulous time. And Fran and I and our, our oldest married daughter, her husband, and our three grandchildren, age 10, 8, and 7, or thereabouts, um, what a perfect, perfect week we've had. We've had a blast. I knew it was going to be different because last week after the service, you served ice cream. No one, no church I know serves ice cream. I, I think that's, that's like California. I will never forget Holy Trinity and ice cream. In fact, I even texted Todd after the service was over, and no, I wasn't supposed to do this, but I, I said, I think, I think it went well. I followed the first rule of medicine, you know, do no harm, and you're all back. So that's, let's move on. Let me remind you about this the intention, why this topic, why this? And it really is more selfish. I wanted to do this. I came up with this topic because a year ago, I had been recovering from back surgery and I was unable, as I mentioned last week, to sit down. I just had to stand up and I got a little standing desk about this size and I read and reread and re-re-re-re-read the same passage over and over and over again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, and I was riveted by it even more. I'd read, read it many times before and maybe preached a sermon or two about it, but I could not get it out of my mind. In fact, it was so intense with me, I, I ended up writing a book about these two chapters. By God's grace, it'll come out in a couple of months, maybe, maybe a month, so I, I just, I, I've come to love what's behind this passage, how it reveals something amazing about the early church that I had never seen, and how it, it allows us as modern believers in a world filled with doubters and despisers of what we believe to look at the church maybe in a new way. To see us not as people who take, but people who give. To see us as people who are authentically moved by what has happened to us in the name of Christ. And because of that, we decide that we can 
approach life and other people and other circumstances with an open hand and an open heart. I hope I can explain that as much as I'm able. So if you'll allow me just to help you remember, let's go to the first slide and then to the second. So just to set this in history, you know, it's the time of Christ, obviously, but 30 years after his death, the main actor here is the Apostle Paul. I mentioned last week, but to remind you, if you weren't here for the ice cream, that Paul was converted on, his, on the road to Damascus, which is in Syria, on the right side of the map, where that arrow is. And we would call the Apostle Paul today, we would call him a terrorist because of the intensity and the religious zeal that he brought. And he didn't care what happened to the people, the objects of his terror. In one instance, one of them was killed. We think there were others, people who were killed under his terroristic ideals in the early, early stages of the church. And then he was converted, changed his mind, his heart was totally rewired, and he spent the next scholars debate three years, 14 years, rethinking everything. And he ends up on a journey on his way to Athens and Corinth, where that magnifying lens is. And then he leaves that church, he spends 18 months there, leaves that church and writes a letter that we have, a couple letters that we have as First and Second Corinthians. Behind all of this is a prophecy that there was going to be a famine back in Judea where Damascus is and south where Jerusalem is. A famine was coming. They could tell it was dry. And the Christians were in dire straits. And the church says, who will go for us and collect an offering so we can actually come back and help these believers out in Jerusalem? And Paul raises his hand and he goes. And everywhere he went, he does a couple things. He preaches the gospel. He brings people to faith. He, you know, agitates the city structures. But he also reminds people, I'm coming back with my offering plate. And I need you to give to these people down here. People they would never meet in their entire life. People they would never know throughout their entire life. People who were only related to them by faith. No blood, no citizenship, not even any kind of race relations. These were Jews in Jerusalem, and these were Greeks and Romans who hated Jews in Jerusalem. And Paul is going around to all his churches and saying, it's time to step up, to give. And I talked a little bit about the background to all that last week, but I want to say a word about Paul's conversion. Because it may be the point, and I don't want to get, well, I, I kind of want to get personal, but I don't want to get, I don't want to invade your space, as they might say in California. I, 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 I want to be respectful that I'm a guest here. But it causes me to ask a question. Do you know the before and after picture of a converted life for you? Or do you know someone that is different because they used to be this and now they're that? And what happened with the Apostle Paul is that we see it in stark contrast because he was a terrorist bent on killing Christians and then a 
something flips in his mind and his heart, and he becomes a believer intent on raising funds for the people that he was trying to kill. That's a remarkable thing. There is a change of heart. And out of that change of heart, Paul writes these amazing letters to the Christians in Corinth. Let me give you an anecdote, see if you'll pick up this way. Are those kids eating our ice cream out there? (laughs) I will stop preaching right now. (laughs) So, you know, in a church, you live in kind of a bubble. I was pastor of a church for 31 years. There's no question it's a bubble. Every once in a while, we'd go to places outside the bubble, and Fran and I went to this birthday party of her brothers in Long Island. And not a single member of our church was up there except Fran and me. And I'm dressed in, you know, a T-shirt and shorts and flip-flops and things like that, and I'm drinking a, a beer and eating a hot dog or something like that. I just looked like a normal guy. I'm standing next to this other guy, and he's got the tan, the Florida tan, and his, his, um, his hair is slicked back. He's got a lot of hair. I noticed that right away. He's got a lot of hair. It's slicked back. He's got the wraparound shades, and he's got the sort of 5 o'clock shadow at 1 in the afternoon. He's just a real, you know, intense-looking guy. And I started talking to him, and I, I'm pretty good with people I don't know. So I said, well, what kind of work do you do? I have to... I have to give you a little clue here. He was as foul-mouthed a person as I have ever run across. And I'm going to repeat some things that he said right now. But I'm going to use the word stuff instead of the word that you can imagine. I don't care what you can imagine. You can insert it whenever I hear. Whenever you hear the word stuff, just think of the worst word you can imagine you'll get this guy. So I said, so what kind of work do you do? Well, I did this stuff up here. And I did some other stuff. And then I, then I went to Florida and I got into some other stuff, but some janitor work stuff. And then I built a business and stuff like that. And, and man, it's stuffing hot down there. And, and I said, but what, what the stuff? I was making money and stuff, you know? And then he goes on like this, on and on and on. And then he says, uh, what do you do? <laughs> and I said, I'm a pastor of a church. And he says, oh, stuff. <laughs> just like that. And then he says words that just, I will never forget what he said. He said, he said oh, stuff. You've got the peace. Somehow he knew that there was a gospel out there to be had, to be embraced, that would give a person a sense of peace. And until that took place in his life, he was going to be chasing all kinds of stuff and never finding it. And this is where the Apostle Paul is and what he writes to us in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, all of the pastoral epistles, is out of the renewed heart. He's not buried in the mountain of stuff that he had had, the law and the rules and the regulation and the, and the ethnic prejudice, he, he, all of that is gone. And he writes out of a sense of peace, of a new heart and love. And all I want to do is focus on one verse, verse 10 of chapter 9, where Paul says, he, meaning God, 
who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. There it is on the screen. Read it with me, just that one verse. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So you see right there, there's four things to be said quickly. He who supplies seed will also supply bread. And the one who supplies seed and bread will multiply the seed and bread and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is out of the converted heart of the Apostle Paul. So the interesting thing is he's obviously he's taking up this offering, but he does what Jesus does. He talks about money as if it were seed. These are very creative people. They lived in metaphors and stories and allegories. He could have chosen any word in the language to describe what we have in our wallet, what's in your wallet. Any word, but he chose the word seed. And the only time the words of the Apostle Paul and the words of Jesus intersect in the Bible, he calls money seed. You know, there's a, you ask any farmer, what's the most valuable thing you have in your possession? You look at it, there's a combine and there's a, you know, a, a tractor, there's a house, and silos and barns and What's the most valuable thing you have? He'll tell you, it's the seed. Because seed's the future. And there's only three things you can do with seed. Like there is three things you can do with money. That's it. There are no more choices. You can either spend it or eat the seed. You can save it or store it up in barns and silos or you can sow it, invest it, put it in the ground and trust the providence of God to do something with it. Those are the only options you have when it comes to seed or money, depending on how you want to apply this in your own life. And Jesus says the same thing. In Luke chapter 6, he says, give and it will be given to you. And then he employs this idea of the seed metaphor for the measure you use, it will be measured back to you, pressed down, shaken together, rolling over, tumbling over, will be poured into your lap. That's an image from agriculture, it's an image of seed. It's an amazing thing to think about, that what we have been given, our talents, our treasures, our time, is to be regarded as seeds. We can eat it now, that is, waste it, or go into debt, or use it to do all the things that we want to consume as consumers, or we can store it up in barns and banks, but what the Apostle Paul is looking for is people who are willing to invest it, to sow it into the ground, because God supplies the seed. It's ours to Use This is a whole concept in the New Testament. But it all comes from God. So God who supplies the seed for sowing, that is the Apostle Paul saying, hey, Christians, Corinthians, think about what God has given you. What's in your wallet? It's to be sown. Because what happens when you sow seed is you get more seed. In fact, it's the only way you get more seed is you have to sow it. 
You don't get more seed by going to the seed store and saying, I want more seed without spending some of the seed to get the seed from the seed store. The only way you get seed is to sow it. And when you sow it, as you know from an apple tree or any other tree, what you get are, well, Jesus says it, doesn't he? A harvest of more, 30, 60, 100 fold. So he, God supplies your seed, but he also supplies this bread. Now that's amazing to me because bread is at the end of the food chain, if you will. It's the start of our food chain, but it's the end of the process change. Seed doesn't become bread without a lot of human effort, right? You don't take wheat and just put it in the ground and expect bread to grow. We know that, right? We're not so sophisticated that we think bread comes from the ground, okay? Bread is the culmination of human effort and toil, work, hard work, grinding, 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 but it all starts with seed. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, this God who gave you the seed is giving you also the ability to turn seed into bread. That's the miracle to me. He gives us seed, the ability to sow, but he also gives us the ability to make bread out of that seed as it comes up. Are you with me? I mean, it's an extraordinary thing to think about because on the one hand, if you have in one hand your seed, which is all potential, there's nothing more than the potential in seed, and you have in this hand bread, Paul is saying that God is in charge of everything from the beginning to the fruit. God's got it all under control. And let me just say something to you, if I may. After 31 years of parish ministry, 35 years of knowing people, I don't know a single Christian business person, man, woman, who looks at their success, whatever it is, and doesn't attribute it to God. If they're, if they're believers, this is kind of the test because they know that they were given seed. But they also know that they were given soil and seasons and sunshine and rain, and weather. They were given all the ingredients by this majestic, powerful God that turns seed into bread. And at some level in the heart of every Christian business leader that I know of is a man, is a woman who has a heart of thanks because they get it. They get it that God has given me both the seed and the bread. It's the non-believer who's saying, I've got the seed and I made the bread. But you didn't make the bread. You put your effort into it, but it was God that pulled it all together. You with me on this? So just quickly, anecdotally, please don't tell Bishop Hunter that I go over my preaching time. Please, that's just our little secret here, if you will. We were at, the, was it Big Corona Beach? Big Corona? Okay. And there's some big houses sort of glued to the cliff up there. And uh, one of them looked abandoned for years and um, somebody had bought it, I could tell, because there was some construction being done down at the bottom, down at the beach level. There's a construction truck outside, and so I, I'm kind of a nosy person, so I walked up to the guy, and I, it was kind of a rough-looking guy, was, uh, covered with tattoos. He had a tattoo right here, it was a hand grenade. You gotta be really committed to tattoos to put a hand grenade on the back of your ear right there. And, I said, hey, hey, how's it going? And he said, uh, fine, man. Uh, I said, what are you doing? I said, just working for the man. 
And I said, uh, well, tell me about this project. And he told me that he's building a little cottage here with a garage and a, uh, a little apartment and then above the little place to sunbathe. And then I said, what's this for? Well, this, this is the owner's going to build this first. And then he's going to remodel everything up there, redo the entire house. And I said, wow, that's amazing. I said, I don't lie. That'd be nice to have, wouldn't it? He said, it sure Sure would. This guy must have done something right. And I said, well, to my way of thinking, looks like he might have been blessed by God. And there are business people who look at their lives and their decisions and say they made them all right. And, and uh, they've done something right. A couple, more, than, more than a few things right. But this, the Christian says, I've been blessed. God has done this. He's turned my potential to actual. I, I can't delay you anymore, but I just want to give you one, maybe two last points here. And that is what the Apostle Paul says here will dispel any thoughts in your mind that I am speaking about a prosperity gospel. Because I'm not. Prosperity gospel means you sow, you invest, and you get the car. All right, You get the bank account, you get the house, you get it all because God wants his people to prosper. Well, God doesn't want, he does want his people to prosper, but look what the Apostle Paul says. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your what? Bread? No, seed. God will multiply and supply your seed as you sow seed. It's not the prosperity gospel. It's living so that the, the gospel can prosper. It's taking the word that we have been given, the word of God's love for us in Christ, and the resources that have been given to us, our time, talent, the money that was given to us, and investing that in a place where more seed, more potential, more opportunity, more leverage can come. The result is a harvest of righteousness. That doesn't mean your righteousness. If you're a believer in Christ, your righteousness is taken care of. But if you have found faith in Christ and have been made righteous with his work on the cross, wouldn't you want to have a harvest of righteousness? That is, wouldn't you want other people to be brought into the kingdom in your wake? because of what you've done, because of what you have invested in, because of what you have offered, because of what you have sown, right? That's how it works. Paul says, now God is, is this God. He is going to give you the seed and he's gonna take care of the process by which it becomes bread. And he's going to give you more seed and multiply that seed so you get even more seed and thus, as you invest this seed into the ground and it grows and becomes a strong church, a great diocese, a faithful seminary, an incredible ministry that brings people to Christ, as these things happen, you will increase the harvest of righteousness behind you. Who doesn't want that? In fact, I would say in closing, that the question that every believer has to address is actually the question that, or the statement that Paul renders in verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Here's the question. I think Paul's asking the Corinthians, and I, I think it translates into our life perfectly. Do you want to be rich in one way 
or enriched in every way? That's it. That's the question. You believe, you embrace this, you become a Christian, you're converted. Something in your life has changed because of who Christ is. And you look at the resources that you have and the time and the talent and the money that you have, all the things that God has given you to steward over. And the question that Paul leaves us with is this. Do you want to be rich in one way? Like everybody in the world wants to be rich in that way. Or do you want to be enriched in every way in order to be generous in every way? So what's the call to action? To sow. Maybe stop eating as much. Maybe stop piling it up as much. But instead, sow it. Give it up to God. Give it up for the benefit, for the righteousness, for the harvest of righteousness of others. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp to our feet. It lights our way and it heats us up. Give us wisdom as we consider these important things as we walk humbly before you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.